Hear now the word of the Lord from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 21, and reading verses 41 to 46. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Thanks be to God for his word. Men and nation states uh, often dream of a worldwide conquest, worldwide dominion. They will all fail. All will fail save Christ. Simple lesson of the psalmist, the 110th psalm, it's quoted more than any other psalm in the entire New Testament. Speaks to our Lord's global outreach to affect worldwide eternal dominion over everyone. In that regard, Christ identifies himself as the divine king priest who will affect eternal dominion. The Pharisees were nationalists. They believed that that was the role that Israel would accomplish. God would defeat Rome and the nation would advance. Uh, They presumed this was their role. Jesus turns it to himself. As you know, it's Passion Week. They have been questioning Christ to catch him in a difficult question, perhaps a gotcha moment to unseat him, his popularity. Now it's his turn. Matthew 22 and the 42nd verse. What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. The answer is partly correct in terms of genealogy, but it does not say enough. Jesus answers from Psalm 110. I encourage you to uh, turn to the Psalter, the 110th Psalm. Uh, Perhaps uh, throughout the lesson, to keep your finger there, we will be uh, referring to it uh, often. It's really the subject matter that uh, is the answer to which Jesus gives uh, to the Pharisees to the end that there is no longer any questions of Christ. Psalm 110. Uh, The psalm is Davidic. It is a royal psalm that speaks to the great messianic king. Also, of course, it's prophetic. Meaning that at some point, it's going to achieve fulfillment. In the Masoretic text, Yahweh, the great God, great covenantal God of Israel, enthrones the Lord. Therefore, Jesus is David's king and superior. The great king of Israel, David, salutes the greater messianic king. The Lord says to my Lord. It's a coronation of formula. It means that Jesus is divine given his appointment and proximity to God to say nothing of his agency to establish worldwide eternal dominion to affect his rule over everything and everyone. Only God can sit where he sits and only God can do what he will do. In that sense, the theology here is ultimately Christological. Christological in the sense that Christ is utterly divine in terms of his appointment as the eternal king priest of Psalm 110. He sits in a seat that only God can occupy. Therefore, it's a pure statement of Christology. 
the doctrine is respecting Christ as the eternal, glorious God of heaven. The fulfillment, of course, is much of our subject matter this morning. It is, it is now. It's also uh, not yet. Interestingly enough, the New Testament has Christ beginning to fulfill the psalm. In Peter's uh, sermon in Acts 2, he has Christ fulfilling the psalm at his ascension into heaven in defeating death and his session to the throne of God. Therefore, the messianic reign has started. Again, let's look at uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 33 to 34. Uh, Luke is going to have Christ beginning the fulfillment of Psalm 110. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for your feet. In other words, Christ at his ascension, in his session to the throne of God, has defeated the great enemy of all mankind in death. Only God can do that, and Christ is God. But as you can see from the quotation of the psalm by Luke in Acts chapter 2, in Peter's sermon, the beginning fulfillment of the psalm has occurred at that moment, our Lord's ascension into heaven. He takes his seat at the right hand of God, meaning that he is God, because only God can sit that close to God himself. It is a reminder, of course, in the sense that Christ is the great king. It's the great king messiah. As king, he, subdu he subdues us, he defends us, and he defeats his enemies, and of course, our enemies. That simply was the role of the king. In terms of representing God, he's going to advance the kingdom of God. That's what kings do. They advance by conquest. They defeat all of their enemies until their will and their rule has been established covering the entirety of the earth. That work has begun in Christ's ascension to the throne. It is in a measure to say it's manifestly important for us to recognize that he's defeated death. Only God can do that. Thus, Christ is the great King Messiah. Fulfillment of the psalm has begun in him. The other part of the identity that's most important from the Psalter, go back to Psalm 110, is Christ is something more than king. He has a dual office. He's a king-priest. So we read in Psalm 110, in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind, Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is an important Old Testament figure. He had an eternal priesthood. Therefore, Christ is not just king, but an eternal king-priest. Uh, this uh, text as well has already begun uh, to be fulfilled in Christ. Uh, it's an allusion to this text in Hebrews uh, chapter 1 in the third verse. Establishing a link between our Lord's atonement and His enthronement to the throne of God, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And so we read in the third verse of the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, and He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He has made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The reference, of course, to the purification of sins means that Christ is a priest. He is offering full atonement for his people. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Another illusion manifesting to us and validating for us 
that Christ is the eternal king priest of which David wrote in Psalm 110. Again, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. The offer of the book of Hebrews, of course, is established for us the majesty of the perfections of Christ as priest. The priestly service in the Old Covenant was daily. Thousands upon thousands of sacrifices were offered. Christ comes in utter manifest fulfillment of it all. He offers one sacrifice for all time. And when He's finished the sacrifice, He sits down because He has completed the work of the great eternal King Messianic Priest. One offering for all time. How can that be? Because of the perfections of His nature. And so the author of the book of Hebrews says, He is the exact representation of the eternal God and Father. All He needs to offer is Himself and that but one time. It is a clear statement of His majesty and royalty as king-priest. More critically, as king, it is how He wins us. He sacrifices Himself. A sacrifice of infinite value, of such perfection that He buys His people from the slave market of sin. Of course, you and I know from the political world, from ancient history, Kings don't die for slaves, but our king does. And that's how he wins us. Manifest evidence of the majesty of the love of God the Son for his people as their high priest. Not just that he offers sacrifice, but he offers himself. And he mediates, of course, victory as the eternal priest. Allusion here to Hebrews chapter 8 1 validates the fulfillment of that present reality as well. Again, Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. Now, the main point is that what has been said is this we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, a minister in the sanctuary. The priestly service under the Old Covenant was always rotating. The high priest, of course, manifestly so. Christ daily ministers for us in the throne of God. And again, that fulfillment is now. The king has won his great victory. He is advancing his rule and his kingdom. The great eternal priest of God has also begun his work as our great mediator before the throne of grace. Something of an illustration of this in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans, in the 34th verse, an aspect of our Lord's mediation on our behalf as the sons of God. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yea, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. In other words, we are surrounded by enemies. We are surrounded by accusers. But Christ has ended the effectiveness of the accusations of our enemies, and he intercedes for us daily before the throne of grace as our great high priest. He makes effective intercession given who He is and advances His dominion through us. And again, what I'm trying to suggest that our Lord is telling the Pharisees and the Sadducees that prophetic fulfillment of Psalm 110 has begun in Himself, meaning that He is exercising and expanding His dominion now. The work has begun. And in that sense, since He is divine, since He is the God-man, 
since his kingship and his priestly work is divine, the work of expanding that dominion is utterly unstoppable because no man can stop God or get in his way other than to be whisked out of his way and utterly defeated. Unstoppable is our Lord's divine dominion and kingship. You and I are about to begin in earnest presidential election season. As well as other state offices, county offices. The office of eternal king priest has been fulfilled. He needs no one's votes. He needs no one to keep in power. He needs no donors. The office is filled. The work has begun. It's unstoppable. It will run its course. And nothing can get in its way. Remind you of the words of the psalmist. God has taken an oath. Thou art a priest forever. The word of God will stand. The priestly work, the kingly work of Christ as the great king priest is started. Oftentimes as Christians, we think that uh, our Lord needs things from us. Uh, he needs our votes. Uh, uh, if you're not a Christian, you might have the faulty notion that you need to vote for Him as Savior. He has the office. He needs no one's votes. He will never be unseated in light of who He is and what He's done. In the sense of the fulfillment of Psalm 110, like divided in a couple of ways, not unlike many military operations, it's phased. Phase one of our Lord's rule has started. Documented and validated for us in His ascension to the throne, as well as His priestly work in subduing us and winning us by the sacrifice of Himself. So phase one has started. There's another phase. It's a future aspect of our Lord's eternal reign and rule. If you will, I'm simply going to call that phase two. And it's marked out for us in Matthew as well as Psalm 110 by a simple preposition. Matthew chapter 22, or if you want to stay in uh, Psalm 110, this is the not yet portion of the fulfillment as stated by the temporal indicator until. Matthew 22, verse 44. Until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. It's the imagery of the conquering king who's yet to defeat all of his enemies. But he will, and his foot will rest upon their necks in their total subjection and defeat. The reference again is to the subjugation of everything that is anti-Christ or anti-Christian. Our king rules. He's expanding his rule in a phased operation, but he is advancing to be sure until every enemy is defeated. All will come to ruin. It is total war, total conquest, and of course, total victory. God cannot be defeated. God will have His way. He will win. And the certainty is based upon the reality of His kingship. Eternal King has promised victory. He will get it. God will make it so. It's a phrase I picked up somewhere, but it certainly applies to Christ. Resistance is futile. The psalm has started fulfillment. It will run its course. His foot will be upon the necks. Everything that's in opposition to Him. Every idea, every thought, 
every word, every person, every king, every prime minister, every navy will come under his total, absolute rule in total conquest. Perhaps worthy to stop. You're not a Christian simply explaining to you from the Word of God the outcome of your life, the outcome of your ideas, the outcome of your hopes and dreams. He will rule until everything is brought in subjection to him. Every tongue will confess he is Christ to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue. God will make it so. Simply not trying to propagate fear, just simply the reality of the certainty of the outcome of every life that lives in opposition to the grandeur and the majesty of the great king priest appointed by God the Father. His reign has started. It has not yet achieved its terminal fulfillment, but it is running its course and nothing will get in its way. Let's talk about the future. The psalm presumes conflict. Great warrior kings engage in battle. There's great raging conflict all over the world today, anti-Christian forces. The psalmist is telling us that universal dominion belongs to Christ, the great king-priest. And he's going to affect that dominion and global reach by conquest. And that is described for us by David, the psalmist, in verses 5 to 7. We're shifting now in the text from the throne room of God to the battlefield. It's interesting, is it not, that we go from throne to battlefield. In in the human order, that's reversed. We go from battlefield to throne. God doesn't have to do it the way we do it. He sits on the throne. Then He achieves victory upon the battlefield. Think of the majesty of that. Kings go out to fight battles, and the outcome of the battle will determine whether they remain or are unseated from their thrones. God does not have to do that in any manner whatsoever. He is king forever. forever. His reign is unstoppable. Because he's king, he will go fight the battles, and in light of the fact he is king, he will win them all. From throne to battlefield, David moves us in the psalm, verses 5 to 7. The language of the text is very metaphorical. It almost speaks of a human warrior. More properly would be to say, he speaks of the actions of a human warrior and it applies it to God, Christ as the great warrior. Language is very, very interesting here in verses 5 to 7. From coronation, we move to worldwide total conquest and the promise of eternal dominion. very mindful of the terrible tragedies in our contemporary history in the Middle East. Uh, This army called ISIS. What are they trying to do? Establish a caliphate in which they will achieve worldwide total dominion. Who's going to win? Christ is. They will be utterly defeated and destroyed. ISIS cannot stand against Jesus Christ because God the Father has appointed him to win and will affect it by his divine power. Alexander came close to ruling and conquest the known world of his day. But, of course, you and I know he never affected dominion over the Americas. The same with uh, the Caesars. Hitler failed. ISIS will fail too. Worldwide conquest is reality, but Christ alone will accomplish it. Let's look at the language of conquest in verses 5 to 6. 
The Lord is at thy right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with his corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. All will be defeated. Somewhat mindful of uh, a different description of this. Referenced by the Apostle John in the book of the Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 6, speaks to the second coming, verse 15, and the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall upon us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? No one is able to stand when Christ comes to achieve the terminal point of His absolute, total, worldwide conquest prophesied in Psalm 110. The instinctive response of every anti-Christian foe will be to flee and to hide but they cannot hide from the wrath of the Lamb. No one is able to stand. We live in an incredibly proud and vain age. No one can stand before the majesty of the great King of Heaven. It is a great reminder. Sue for peace. While there is still time for peace, by going to Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of God's elect, and His great mediatorial work upon the cross, accomplishing redemption for His people by the sacrifice of Himself. The last line of Psalm 110 is most graphic in the portrayal of human language of a conquering uh, warrior. He will drink from the brook by the wayside, therefore he will lift up his head. It is the picture of a king pursuing his foes, running them to ground, totally defeating them. Picture of successful conquest. And at the end of the conquest, he will go to a brook and satisfy himself with the refreshment of water and then lift up his head in utter satisfaction at the completion of his work. He is undaunted and lift up his head in final satisfaction of his work of total, worldwide, global reach of absolute dominion. Every foe defeated. Every false idea vanquished before the great eternal king-priest written of by David in Psalm 110, the beginning fulfillment, his session to the throne post-resurrection, and now running its course until his foot is upon every neck of every foe. Finishing the battle like a warrior who will go refresh himself. Begins the language of humanity applied to Christ. You pursue an enemy, you grow hot and tired and weary, but after vanquishing your foe, you go to a brook, you quench your thirst, and you lift up your head in satisfaction, for the battle is over. Again, we oftentimes apply human language to Christ, but we know that He vents it all in light of who He is. He never grows thirsty or tired, but it is a reminder that the battle will be over in the conquest won, and He will be the victor in light of who He is. I'd like to remind you of something here that's most important in terms of application of the Psalter to uh, each of us as Christians. As Christians, we are engaged in the advancement of the kingdom of Christ through nonviolent means. We pray, we love, we give, we sacrifice. Our means are all nonviolent. The exercise of violent means were fulfilled by Christ. And when He comes again, make no mistake, there will be great violence. That's the language of Revelation 6. It's the language of Psalm 110 and verse 7. Because they will be defeated. 
all of his enemies vanquished and his foot will be upon their neck. I remind you that we are in an interim period. That simple preposition until has not yet been reached. And so as Christians, as agents of the great king priest, we advance his kingdom nonviolently in the sharing of the gospel, in prayer, in loving, in living, in preaching. Violence is his office. It's a great reminder, is it not, of the utter difference between the church and radical Islam. They are attempting to advance the caliphate through great violence, terrible violence, unspeakable violence to women and children, incredible violence that in and of itself represent actions of such vile hatred that it disqualifies them in every manner or form of being the agents of God. Because in the now time, in the interim time, God has appointed His kingdom to be advanced by love. And so we love in light of the fact that He has loved us first and loves us to the end. And so we love people in nonviolent means. But at some point, those nonviolent means will be set aside and Christ will come as mighty conqueror in utter violence to anyone who has ever opposed Him and he will utterly destroy them. And the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 that every tongue will confess and every knee shall bow in light of the fact that he is the glory of God who wins and reigns world without end. Simply remind you that if you are a member of the great anti-Christian forces, the psalmist is describing your end, the word of the Lord. But there is in the psalm in and of itself uh, a great picture of, of Christians, the agents of the great eternal king. In that sense, there's a very subtle shift in the psalm from Christology to ecclesiology or the church. Because if Christ is king, his victory is sure, and it is. And if we are his sons, then we are identified with him, and when he wins, we will win. That his accomplishments become our accomplishments. And when you are identified with Him through believing in Him by faith in Christ, His victory becomes your victory. Let me illustrate this for you by asking you to turn in Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. The great visions of Christ. It's a different way to look at our Lord's session to the throne. Uh, his uh, seating at the right hand of God the Father and achieving eternal dominion and status, Daniel chapter 7 and the 14th verse. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Christ appears before God the Father, and in light of what he has done for his people, takes his seat. And there is promise to him worldwide total conquest and victory. And his kingdom will not be destroyed. In light of the theology of the book of Daniel, think of it, the children of Israel in captivity. Seemingly, God has been defeated by the gods of Babylon. Marduk is triumphing over the God of heaven. That is sheer folly. Marduk is going to be unseated and God will conquer and Christ is the conqueror. But there is a shift in this text that's most important from Christ as the great high king who has given eternal dominion to his people, to you and to me. Look at Daniel chapter 7 and 27th verse. Then, then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. In other words, Christ has won it for us as well. And the dominion passes to us. 
Christ is victor, and we are victors in him in light of who he is. He achieves the dominion and then passes it to his sons. If you're a Christian, I know you're fighting battles, but in Christ, ultimate victory and dominion falls to you. The psalmist is clear that uh, Christ in the present uh, age is ruling in the midst of his enemies. Uh, By the way, even that language applies to you. Psalm 23. Thou preparest a table before me in the midst of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surrounded by enemies, the church seemingly is suffering defeat after defeat. Not so, the psalmist tells us. He sets before us a victory banquet in the midst of our enemies. And he has won the victory for us and will pass the victory to us. And goodness and mercy will follow us all of the days of our life. And he will run us to ground and we will dwell in the presence of his glory, world without end. The psalmist says forever, forever, we will live with him. Our banquet, of course, is not yet, but it will be. Because Christ has taken the seat of his throne at the right hand of God the Father. In the present time, he is ruling in the midst of his enemies while gathering his people. Isn't that a wonderful thought? At some point, if you're a Christian, he gathered you. If you're not a Christian, perhaps today he will gather you. Again, Psalm 110. Rule in the midst of thine enemies. But now we switch uh, from uh, the notion of the rule of God to the reality that kings have followers and volunteers. The description of our Lord's army in Psalm 110. Our nation needs soldiers, sailors, marines. And so recruiters are out uh, trying to sign men and women up. Our great king has volunteers too. And they are described in verse 3. Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Thy youth are to be to thee as the dew. That our Lord's volunteers and followers are made warriors by the power of the great King. The phrase holy array in verse 3 of the psalmist is a description of his army. Very interesting that phrase holy array is used as a description in the Old Testament of the priests of God. So that God makes us to be his priests and clothes us in the clothing of his priests. The king advances the kingdom first by making priests and lots of them at that, the psalmist tells us. Simply the reality of, of uh, Old Testament fulfillment uh, captured for us in one measure by the Apostle John, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6. He has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. I, I love the phrase volunteers, but I also love the reality that we're made volunteers by his power. In the great day of his power, he comes and simply makes us his priest in his power. All over the United States of America tomorrow, recruiters of the service will go out and try to talk men and women to sign up. They'll get a few. In the day of his power, Christ simply whisks us into his kingdom and clothes us in holy array in light of who he is as the great king priest. In light of his power. It is a power that begins in the work of redemption and salvation. It is a power that will extend to the utter, total, worldwide dominion and global outreach when the final victory is won. We sit down to celebrate with him in the midst of our enemies. 
There's an interplay here in the psalmist between womb and youth and mourning and dew. The point of the contact from the psalmist is numbers. The youth of Messiah's army will be born to him as dew is in the morning. And since in the morning dew is everywhere, this portrays the vastness of his army. An army so large that no man can number in the day of the power of our Lord. Again, I want to remind you of something. I think there's a very subtle shift here from a description of the great king to his agents or his volunteers or his warriors. It is a shift from Christology to ecclesiology. That our entire lives as members of the church of Jesus Christ is linked inextricably to our Lord and who He is as the great King Priest. We cannot separate ourselves from that. To do so would be utter folly and mean utter defeat. Paul, I, I, I think, will cement this reality for us as he alludes uh, to the psalmist in Ephesians 1 and Colossians 3, as he validates the shift of the psalmist from Christology to ecclesiology. From Christ as King to Christ and His people. Again, if you have your New Testament, I trust you do. Uh, the first chapter, the book of Ephesians, the 20th verse, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Again, you can see the fulfillment of Psalm 110. The context is Paul's prayer in verses 18 and the first part of verse 19. Let's look at the prayer. Paul is going to pray. He's praying for the church. What do you happen? What happens when you pray? Lots of things happen. What I'm going to suggest to you in light of who Christ is, Paul's prayer is going to be answered in light of who Christ is and what he has done. Let's look at the prayer. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of His calling and what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might. And the prayer is answered based on Christ's power in session to the heavenly throne. Paul wants us to know and understand the hope of the resurrection, the riches of the glory of our inheritance. And he pledges to us the certainty of the answer of that prayer based upon the reality that Christ is reigning and ruling from heaven now as he is written and now as you and I sit in the church hearing of the glory of the Son of God. That God confirms to us the riches of the glories of our inheritance because Christ is at the right hand of God the Father, the great King Priest, making it so. That the utter reality of our dominion, our identity is tied to the identity of Christ. The shift of ecclesiology to Christology and from Christology to ecclesiology. We live in a world that utterly has no hope whatsoever. It's all going to be vanquished. Save the Christian and the hope of worldwide total dominion in Christ who wins, and if you're a Christian, you will win in Him. Our future, therefore, is inextricably linked to who Christ is and where He is now. And who is He but the eternal God? And where is He reigning and ruling at the right hand of God the Father? Many cases, the Christian needs to recover our identity. And our identity is the identity of Christ, our great King. In that sense, it is a psychology tied to Christology. By psychology, I sometimes mean that we get depressed and discouraged. It's the way of man. We're fallen creatures. We get all beat up in life and we lose our courage. And sometimes we lose our way. 
we need to recover the clarity of the understanding of who Christ is because that seals our identity and our victory. And our hopes will never be vanquished in light of where he is ruling and reigning now. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Again, another aspect of the fulfillment of Psalm 110 in the life of the church. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things again. I'm sorry, reading Philippians. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. If then you have been raised up with Christ, we have been, we came to faith, He is seated to the right hand of the Father, and we are united with Him in His location. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated to the right hand of the God, of God. Set your mind on the things above and not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. You can see the connection there. That our psychology needs to be tied to the fulfillment of Psalm 110. And Paul is making that for us. In the lives that we are to live, in the life of the Christian, in the life of the church. That we have experienced a spiritual resurrection and are to live in light of who Christ is and where He is. Our holy array means that we are not to live in accordance with the old Adam and the world. It's a great application here, is there not? We, I mean, I understand I, in life we get all beat up sometimes, we get down in the mouth and we get despondent, we lose our courage. I understand that there are great exigencies in life that because of the fallen world that we live in that will sometime and someday come and knock on your door. Keep your theology. Understand who Christ is and who you are in Him and what will happen when He comes for you. The total absolute riches of your inheritance in the saint will be achieved. God will make it so in God the Son. We need to recover a measure of our identity in the identity of Christ. And where is Christ now ruling and reigning? And we are His sons. Another great exhortation, again, if you will, Ecclesiology based upon Christology, book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Great exhortation to the saints. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Soldiers fight battles. Athletes run races. You and I are both. But these injunctions mean that we are to persevere in hardship as warriors. And when the battle grows hot and heavy, we must fix our eyes on Jesus. That is exactly what the author of the book of Hebrews says. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He persevered. He was rewarded. We must live in light of who he is, where he is, and what he will do for us, make us participate in worldwide total dominion and rule as his sons. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. I would submit to you that sometime in the depths of difficulties in life, we need to step back and recover our theology. Who Christ is, where He is, what He's going to do. Christology needs to become our ecclesiology and our psychology. Fixing our eyes on Jesus to enable us to run the race that is set before us. Final reminder, of which there are, of course, many. Book of the Revelation, chapter 3, verse 21. Context of the book of Hebrews is some are fading and falling away. He tries to check them. Context of the book of the Revelation is many in the church are compromising their faith. 
And so John, as a good pastor, attempts to interdict them, to turn them back to the Savior. Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. The summons to perseverance. Why should we persevere? Well, there are many reasons, of course, but the ultimate reason here is that we persevere, we will sit down with him on his throne. Again, it's the theology of Daniel chapter 7. The dominion passes to us. Where he reigns, we will reign. Where he is victorious, we will be made the victors and we'll sit with him on his throne, watching the utter defeat of his every enemy, their every idea of falsehood and folly. We're to endure in light of the promise to sit with Him on His throne. The perseverance identifies us with Christ in His dominion and achieves exalted status. In all of our dark thoughts, maybe we need to make occasion for thoughts of Christ. Who He is. Where He is. And what He will do to us at the end of the age. Maybe we need to be like the world, the summons of the world. Have big dreams. Well, dream this. Christ wins. You're going to win in Him. You cannot be defeated. The dominion will pass to you. His victory will be your victory. The victory of the sons of God. The internal inheritance of the saints. Psalm 110. Christology ecclesiology, past session to the throne, future, until every enemy is defeated, our psychology, in Christ we win, in Him, every time, all the time, because He is God. Jesus as King Messiah rules now and will achieve the consummation of His reign. Our identity is bound up in Him, who He is, and our ultimate victory is linked inextricably to Him. If you're not a Christian, Psalm 110 tells a story of your life. But if you are a Christian, it tells a story of your life too. The dominion will pass to you. We will be seated with Him because of our identity by faith in Him. May God grant us all the power to believe and hope in Him. And may God reawaken each of us to our identity tied to Christ, who He is, what He has done, and where He is as a reminder of where we will one day be.